Once upon a time, there was a mean old man who lived high on a mountain. Now, this old man was very nasty to the townspeople, his dogs, and especially Christians. Then one day, he yelled so loud at a Christian that an avalanche came and destroyed his cabin. Text your friends, God's not dead, but this old man is. Well, if you didn't like that story, how about the other story where there was this faraway land with the white hats and the black hats? And the black hats just want to kill everyone, especially white hats. And the white hats just want to be free to love. But seriously, when you describe it that way, no one likes a preachy story. Or do we? As Christians, however, how do we best respond when secular stories start getting especially preachy? Welcome anew to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com. At Lorehaven, we find the best of Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we explore these stories, find their virtues, their beauties, their truths, all that good stuff, and apply these to the real world that our creator, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I am Lorehaven's publisher, E. Stephen Burnett. I'm also the co-author of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell. You can call me Zach. This is episode 59, How Can Christian Fans Respond to Preachy Secular Fiction? So don't preach me, bro. Yes, we're actually taking another approach to this topic. Uh, this could be another one of those Christian podcasts or another one of those fiction podcasts where we sit there and lament about how corny and preachy the Christian movies are. Uh, we're actually going to reverse that a little bit, and we're going to sit and scoff and mock and maybe even offer some critique of substance about preachy secular stories. Because, yes, plenty of evangelical movies and fiction, including some of our fantasy fiction, can get pretty preachy in the wrong sort of way. But we can also look askance at the uh, the secular world of story creation and say, yeah, you guys are kind of preachy too. In fact, lately we've noticed that a lot of you are getting more and more preachy and it's not even preachy about stuff that's arguably true. Like the Christian movies can be preachy about some of the stuff y'all are preaching are just not even good sermons. Uh, they don't do anything to benefit the story and they just make everything really, really, really cringe. Steven, my favorite example of this, I've shared this before, was from the, was it 1998 Lost in Space film, the one with uh, Chandler from Friends. And they say, uh, you know, the, the son asks the father, why do we have to go in a spaceship to another planet? Well, son, it's because people in the 1990s didn't recycle enough. And I thought, oh, that's what I have to do. I have to recycle more. So, but, but wait a second. I want to go on a spaceship somewhere else. So now I'm, I'm conflicted. Oh, darn. You but didn't yes. recycle enough. And now suddenly spaceships, <laughs> there's your punishment. <laughs> right. I'm like, how do I lose in this scenario? But then, you know, Wally came out many years later, which almost made the point in a more uh, overt way, but in a more subtle way at the same time. Wally was more overt, but less preachy, if you can imagine. And maybe it helped that the uh, director, Andrew Stanton, at least at the time, was a professing Christian. I don't know him. I haven't seen his church membership certificate, but he was in World Magazine, I think, talking about some of the biblical themes about stewardship in there. So that more biblical worldview probably informed his approach in the story to man's destruction of the environment, you know, 500 some odd years from now, you know, where you see all the old satellites just surrounding the earth. It looks disgusting. And it's a kind of a visual wry commentary on 
human waste and the excesses of consumerism. I mean, there's Wally down on the planet just cleaning up all the mess, the last uh, robot that didn't get turned off before humanity escaped. Uh, Wally, I would not say, is an example of preachy secular fiction. Uh, some people accused it of being that, but I, I think that was a, a reflexive and incorrect critique. No, uh, a more recent example of what seems to be preachy secular fiction, and it helped us spark the idea for this episode. Disclaimer here, a, a really quick a snack from the concession stand. Uh, we're not going to be a, a Jordan Peterson podcast, okay? Zach, are we good? We're, we're not going to try to ride <laughs> Dr. Peterson's coattails uh, about, you know, clean your room or lobsters or anything like that. We're, we're not going to fall into that hole. But we are going to briefly name check the good doctor uh, because as of this recording, there was a, a, a brouhaha uh, in which uh, he and his fans discovered that a Marvel comic had apparently revamped the Red Skull villain uh, who is suddenly on everyone's YouTube feed spouting Jordan Peterson-esque language and reaching out to young men and giving them something to hope for quoting 10 simple rules and all kinds of other catchphrases that he's known for. I would like to think, because I haven't seen the comic in full, I haven't read the comic, a uh, part of me would want to reserve judgment and say, okay, you know, maybe the writer, even though he's known for being a pretty well on the social left in, in most regards, maybe the writer is going to double back and perform some act of subterfuge. Perhaps uh, it turns out that well, the Red Skull has a point and Captain America or whomever in the Marvel hero world uh, could really stand to learn from this person on the Internet. Why is he attracting so many young men? You know, what have we done uh, to leave these young men vulnerable to such a terrible Nazi era villain? But my guess is that it's not going to be as clever as that. Uh, my guess is that what you see is what you get. And it's as simple as Red Skull is a Nazi. Red Skull sounds like Jordan Peterson. Ergo, Jordan Peterson is a Nazi. Ergo, punch a Nazi or, or you know, punch, uh, punch your shield into him uh, and, and must avoid. Well, I love how much he has <laughs> he's totally capitalized on this, of course, like the evil capitalist that he is. He's got the uh, Hail Lobster, I guess, instead of Hail Hydra. He's got a T-shirt line. <laughs> he's got posters. I mean, uh, Freedom Tunes even made a version of it. It it's just it's gone wild, and I I just love that he is having fun with this. Th this whole like riff on him is Red Skull. It it's obviously written to be so serious, and this is very important by very smart people, you know. And so the fact that he's making fun of it and really just making fun of himself, I think my favorite version is Red Skull saying, "If you see a cat, pet it," <laughs> in this like really scary scary kind of font. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm allergic to cats. So that is pretty scary, right? Well, Nazis are scary and we don't want to dismiss the concerns about white supremacy or any of those evil movements. You know, racial uh, tension is still high. Uh, racism is still evil. We want to be sensitive to that. And that is why such uh, cheap, shallow sermons like this are not helping. It's a form of emotional inflation. Uh, the value now of the sin is going down because you're calling everything a sin. You're, you're labeling everything racism or Nazism. And we could go further into that. I mean, that, that's just another example, though, of how sometimes the sermons in preachy fiction just aren't even that good. You know, they're, they're not just a truth told in a very poor way, but an, a, a lie that sounds like a truth uh, told in a very poor way. So ultimately, you know, we're, we're asking this question, what even makes it preachy, right? 
And I, I think what it is, is that so much of what we're going to be talking about today it is, it's not even fiction in a way it's propaganda. It's, it's not even a story. It's just like a pretty overt message. That's n- not as clever as it pretends to be. Um, and so we've got a lot of examples of, of films and books that do this. So maybe we should give like a quick overview. We'll talk about like, what is wrong with a preachy story? I mean, we're Christians. We preach the gospel. Pre- preaching is a good thing. Like, uh, I, I want to be the first to say that we should preach the gospel. I don't at all believe in this idea of preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I mean, that's like saying feed the hungry and if necessary, use food. <laughs> The gospel is meant to be preached. Why doesn't that work with stories? And then secondly, are we sure we don't secretly want preachy stories? I mean, isn't that kind of the thing that we want? That we all just want to just say exactly what we think others need to hear? And thirdly, we'll look at, yeah, we'll we'll name some some preachy secular stories. Again, we're not going to go after Christian stories like, that's been done, like you said, Stephen. Yeah, I'm kind of bored with that. We'll we'll do it sometime, but it it has it has been done, and increasingly those critiques are a little bit uh, old fashioned and trite. So, what is wrong with preachy stories, Stephen? Yeah, I can give a quick uh, overview of what's wrong with the preachy stories just by shooting from the hip. Uh, that I would challenge uh, some of the assumptions that Christians just can't help but have uh, in their heads, kind of deep in their imaginations. It's been stuck there when we weren't looking. It's a meme that we've caught. Uh, this uh, gentle suspicion that if we aren't preaching all the time, uh, then we are somehow not fulfilling God's purpose for us, uh, especially in some more conservative or traditional Christian denominations. Uh, the preacher is held in high regard. Uh, the pastor seems to be the highest office of the church. He's the guy with the most talent. He's the man with the plan. It's usually a single individual. You may have an associate pastor or a youth pastor or a music pastor, depending on how your church is run. But the pastor regardless of his title, is held in high regard. And I think that that is appropriate because there is a biblical office of elder. Uh, I would understand that to be a teaching elder. It, it is definitely a high and distinct calling. Preaching is, as you said, Zach, the way that Christians communicate the gospel, especially in that local church context. Or if you're going out to be an evangelist with a parachurch ministry or even on the street, preaching is where it's at. The Bible holds that in very high regard. However, preaching is not the only job of the Christian. Not even preachers preach all the time. Most preachers also do administrative work or they do counseling. Uh, They're sitting on a committee. They're going out uh, to the public. They are doing a prayer before a city council meeting. Not everything even the preacher does is preaching. Not everything the missionary does is overt missionary work. Sometimes you got to go out, you know, go back home, run a slideshow uh, and do some fundraising. You know, even the preachers don't always preach. And so for the Christians, Christians are not always preaching. I'm not a preacher. I don't think I've been called to that. I feel like I'm preaching right now, but that's just because, you know, I have this nice shiny microphone and a little bit of an audience and uh, I do feel called to do that. It's kind of ironic, though, if you think about it, I'm kind of preaching about how we're not always supposed to be preaching. But as we've talked about on Fantastical Truth and frequently at laurahaven.com, before we have the a missionary mandate or what people would call the great commission given by Jesus at the end of the gospel of Matthew, you have the cultural mandate given by God to Adam and Eve representatives of the whole human race in Genesis chapter one. Uh, the cultural mandate has not expired. Uh, Christians are called to reflect that mandate and pursue that when we build stuff, when we create art or stories or, or even just uh, create food or build the buildings in which preachers will preach. 
uh, those also are callings from God. They reflect the image of the creator back to him. We need to have the, uh, the great commission in order to understand the purpose of the cultural mandate, but you've got to have the cultural mandate to fulfill the great commission and vice versa. Stories I would put uh, under the, the, the domain, not necessarily of the great commission, although there is a purpose to that, uh, but primarily stories are made in fulfillment of the cultural mandate. We make stuff using God's stuff in order to glorify God. Uh, preaching interrelates with that, but they are not the same. So if you have a preachy story, uh, you're operating at cross purposes. Uh, you're running a chainsaw in the middle of an opera performance. It just doesn't fit. And you hear this buzz, buzz, buzz in the background, and it throws off the entire vibe of the thing. And even if the buzzing seems to be in harmony, uh, usually the trained ear can detect the difference and it just grates on the imagination and you feel like something's not quite right. Switching metaphors, I think it's a bit like an early or poor computer animation of a human being where they just can't get the eyes right. And then uh, people mm. started calling that the uncanny valley. I think that preachy mm -hmm. fiction creates an uncanny valley effect. We feel like something is not quite right, even if we can't identify exactly what that is. I said earlier, there is a clear difference between art and propaganda. And simplest way to see the difference is, is propaganda is bad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's never very good art. It, it doesn't ring true. It doesn't connect. It's not memorable. It really doesn't leave you wanting more. Like you're just, you want to get rid of it. You want to get over it. Maybe you would throw it at someone to try to convert them or something, but, but propaganda doesn't really stick. It doesn't resonate. So I often find that when I feel a disconnect from something that's supposed to be art, I kind of take a step back and go, oh, I see. I, I see the propaganda in this in that it's, um, it's not showing me a truth or a beauty or a goodness. It is telling me what I need to do to be true or to be good or to have excellence in my life, that it's, um, it's trying to take a shortcut. The clearest way that I've understood this is that it's really just a confusion of the medium or like a confusion of the genre. As we said, in church, a preacher preaches. That is absolutely the job of a preacher. Now, a preacher can also tell stories to make a point about what he's preaching about, and that's fine too. But it's like when the story itself is the preaching, then it kind of doesn't work. Like those are different things. But I think what preachiness is built upon is a lack of trust in the reader or a lack of trust in the audience. It's not trusting the intelligence of the viewer to get what the theme is or to figure out what message is, or it's to try to force a message. It, it's to like, here's the moral of the story. Like, like literally like how a lot of children's storybooks are like at the very end, here's the moral of the story. That is what causes the disconnect is because everyone likes to think of themselves as a smart person, but a preachy story tells someone implicitly you're dumb. Let me help you understand it. Well, that's the issue with, and once more, we're not going to spend this whole episode critiquing preachy Christian fiction. But in order to help this go down a little bit easier for, for some listeners, you will read, for example, some Christian novels uh, in, that end with a discussion guide. Or, or I've noted this example in several articles, at least in the past, you have had some Christian novels, including some novels that are in fantastical genres that feature a non-Christian character who's either fallen away from their religious upbringing uh, or are just an unbeliever in, in some way. 
And the purpose of the unbeliever character seems to be not to provide someone that the Christian reader can identify with, but to provide someone whom the Christian reader would like to get saved. You know, the, the reader then is put on a platform over the character. And I don't think this is author's intent all the time, but I think that's the net effect. You know, instead of identifying as much with the main character, uh, the reader is invited to partake in uh, almost a kind of a, a surrogate imaginary evangelistic campaign uh, for the main character. The effect is uh, is that of not so much challenging the reader, uh, especially if the book is marketed to Christian readers. It's very unlikely, by the way, that a secular reader is going to read the book, uh, but maybe it makes uh, the book a little easier to sell to marketing. Hey, here's a book. Uh, you know, if you, if you pick this up, you know, this is a book that Christian readers can enjoy and then also give to their unsaved friends. What's the assumption behind that kind of strategy? The chief end of man is evangelism. Well, the chief end of man is not evangelism. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which can include, but is not limited to evangelism. Perhaps Zach and listeners at the end of our, you know, 100, 200 year Lorehaven terraforming project, uh, more Christian readers of fantasy and other fiction uh, will appreciate a book uh, that is made strictly for your enjoyment and uh, your growth as a better Christian, even if you never share it with anyone else or never speak of it to an unbeliever, theoretical or otherwise. So let me give an example of where I actually made a Christian short film that I think was not preachy and that this was part of a team I was on, a ministry team 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm really, really proud of this film that we made together because it was, it was, well, it was a lot of fun to make. We made the whole thing in a week. It was, it was for the uh, 168 film festival where we have 168 hours to make a film. So it was a, you know, it was a whirlwind making this thing. And the film is called Cabernet. I'll link to it in the show notes. And it's sort of like a romantic comedy short story on the surface. I mean, and that's, that's all the story is. So it's a, uh, the description is while waiting for his first date with Michelle, young professional Brett discovers a wine stain that just won't disappear. The film was based on the passage in uh, Mark where a leper comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And, and Jesus touches him to make him clean of leprosy, like cures him or heals him. And, you know, this is obviously very scandalous that Jesus would touch a leper. And so that was the Bible verse assigned to us. We had to make a film to portray that. We, we had to put like part of the verse or part of the theme in the film. I forget exactly what the rules were, but we were really adamant. Like, we don't want to make this a preachy film. We, we don't even want to make this like a story about Christian faith. Like we want to make this a story that, ever, that anyone can relate to. And so it's about this guy. And as he's waiting for his date to arrive, he spills some red wine on his white shirt. And everything he tries to do to get rid of it makes it worse. And the the waiter for his table is like really has compassion on him. And finally, at the end, when right when he thinks he got rid of the stain, it like comes back magically, and it's even worse. And so the wait just spoiler alert, but the waiter sees him come out of the bathroom right as his date arrives, and they kind of look at each other. And then in the next scene, he shows up with a clean shirt, but the waiter had is wearing the stained shirt and he is under a performance review and he gets in trouble and he gets sent home for the day. What, what made me really happy was when someone reviewed this film. And so this is on the review page. Someone said, good illustration of the atonement. And I'm like, yes, you got it. Cause it's funny reading some of the reviews. <laughs> One of the reviews was 
an honest portrayal of true customer service with heart. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yes, like it is about that. It's not just about that. But yeah, on the surface, that's all it's about. That's all that happens in the film. But this first review that said good illustration of the atonement, like they immediately saw the Christian theme, but then it continues and says, maybe an explicit quotation from the Bible at the end would have shot the message through. No, don't do that. No, really don't. I'm warning you. Really don't. Don't do that. No. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, that never crossed my mind ever to do that because I, why would I need to? You got the message. Like you, you immediately understood it. Why do I need to hit you over the head with it? So my, my ministry team director at the time, we talked about this. We talked about that review and he had a really good uh, response. He's like, you know, I'm a big believer in personal evangelism emphasis on the person. I would show this film with that other guy that, that said, oh, this is great customer service with heart. He's like, that would be the perfect person to talk to about this film and say, you know, there is a deeper meaning to this. Can I tell you about it? And then boom, you're right there in a gospel conversation. But think about that person, if, if how their reaction would be, if at the end it hits you over the head with, here's the moral of the story, that person would have tuned out. The point that Chris, my team director at the time was making was, People respond to evangelism from another person way better than like an impersonal method of sharing the gospel. And we want to empower people to have those person to person conversations. So yeah, you don't, you don't need to make it explicit. You don't need to shoot the message through. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, guy that reviewed our film, like we're just never going to do that, but I'm glad that you got the message. Well, there may be a place for a story like that, but it's going to weaken the story. And that's the paradox of the thing. The more preachy you make the story, uh, the more you're going to please maybe some executive or some board member of your parachurch organization, but the less effective the story will actually be. Because if you are in the realm of story, the power of story is in appealing to the imagination, which requires subtlety, which requires images, which requires symbol, and all of those other God-given means of communication that are not overt didactic words in the form of nonfiction or a sermon. And I think that that makes some Christians nervous. But apparently, uh, lately, I think it's actually making secular uh, story fans more nervous, or at least it makes the board members and the CEOs and whoever's running the diversity quotas at some of the major film studios and YA publishers nervous. I think that that's a pretty hilarious twist of fate. And I think it illustrates our next point here, are we sure we don't secretly want preachy stories? Because you can go onto the interwebs or onto an evangelical blog and get complaints galore about how preachy and annoying Christian fiction is, particularly evangelical movies. And among their criticisms are always, it's so preachy. And some of those are, of course, fair criticisms. We've had plenty of those uh, on our own. You know, I certainly have uh, given a, a mildly snarky Christian movie review at the time and some of my favorite uh, YouTube channels, uh, one in particular, the Say Goodnight Kevin channel, it makes, a, it makes a habit of providing uh, gently seasoned roasts, uh, mostly of, of Christian movies. But there are many people who do want the preachiness and not just Christians. And you increasingly notice that among the secular audiences. And I, I've noticed in myself, though, that impulse before I start you know, nagging at anybody else, uh, Zach. I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you, but in my uh, history as a, at least an unpublished so far novelist, 
even when I knew that there was a thing called preachy Christian fiction and that it was annoying, I was certain in my work in progress that I was doing it right. And there was a loud conversion scene. It was on a hilltop and somebody was yelling to the skies and everything. I mentioned cringe earlier. Well, now I think of that early draft and I feel not ashamed. I just feel like laughing at myself. Ha ha ha. I say, you were so smart thinking that you could just do it better. And then I wonder. No, are, no one's done real preachy films. That's before. right. No, well, not effectively. Like I, I can do it. I can do it <laughs> because I, I feel it. I'm so passionate about it. Like, no, everything in the story has actually moved this character to this point. And there's only one thing to do. Get saved in a loud and spectacular way. <laughs> Most of the time, real life is not like that. You know, there, there may be dramatic moments that rise to the top of the uh, Christian anecdote pile. And that's great. We love it when anyone gets saved. We're not going to minimize the importance of that miracle in the least. But salvation occurs in many different ways. And one of the less observed ways, especially because it's uh, more subtle and uh, a bit annoyingly slow, is the manner of someone just kind of realizing gradually during the day that they've started to believe this. And then maybe the next day they believe it a little more. And the next day they believe a little bit more. And then they fall back into some terrible sin. And then three years later, they're an actual Christian and you never know exactly when they moved from darkness to light. Only the Holy Spirit knows. And it's so frustrating, especially for, I think, uh, Western Christians, because we want to reduce it to the science. Uh, we want an exact statistical point where someone crossed over from A to B and sometimes a person's story and imagination, all that just doesn't work like that. And uh, I got a little bit carried away there, but yeah, I think that's why we secretly want the preachy stories. We want a simple version of uh, that conversion event or someone deciding to rededicate their life or something uh, because we like simple stuff. We can't help it. We, we want to find meaning and meaning sometimes uh, seems to require simplicity. And stories are supposed to simplify things sometimes. But as we've seen from our preachy Christian fiction, uh, there is a risk in simplifying too far, uh, even to the point of making all the the quirky and or nice characters, Christians, and uh, the bad and or uh, simply lame characters, uh, non-Christians, that just won't do. Uh, often it's the Christians who are quirky and lame and terrible and nasty, and the non-Christian characters who are kind of awesome or really awesome and rich and powerful and have all of the fun. So we've got to be careful uh, when, uh, when, when we're enjoying these kinds of stories, whether it's secular or Christian, uh, to hopefully seek and or uh, endorse the stories that are a little bit closer to reality. I think what drives us to want preachy stories is sort of a confirmation bias, you know, dopamine hit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our culture is so addicted to hot takes and dunks. That is how we've taken to communicating uh, the last decade or so. But I, I think too, it's like if the goal is conversion, and I don't just mean in the like spiritual sense, but that is like a marketing term, right? Like if you're, you know, your mass market email has so many conversions, like in other words, sales, like if you're, someone clicks on a link in an email and buys this, buys a widget, you know, then that's a conversion. And I think we've kind of commodified movies and in books the same way that like, Oh, someone's going to take, <laughs> I was about to say finish the DVD, but you no, know, just pause Netflix or whatever. Go back to the home screen on Netflix and then they're going to log off and then they're going to do X, Y, or Z 
social action, um, or they're going to donate money to some cause or get involved with some group. I don't think you can do that with a film or a story because I, I think it's such a slower process of how stories change people. Now, there can be rapid changes like the, the example I've always heard is Bambi. Apparently, the year after Bambi released, hunting licenses went down by a sizable percentage. As a positive example, after the movie Taken came out, the interest in ministries and organizations helping victims of sex trafficking. Uh, went up, like memberships and interest and donations to those organizations uh, increased. And so, yeah, there sometimes can be kind of a mass response to a story, but I, I think that's really an exception to the rule. Again, it, it doesn't happen because the story tells you the thing to do. I, I think it sort of puts that idea in your mind, if it does it well, it's sort of like an inception. It's like this idea wrapped in a story, wrapped in a dream, you know, wrapped in this imagery and it, and you don't, and you, you think of it as your own idea. And that takes a, a considerable amount of trust for a storyteller to do that, to just, just, just to paint a picture and then, then let the person internalize it and interpret their own way. Oh, that's all 100% true. And it is the more positive side of a story that is doing its job well. Uh, which leads then to uh, some few examples uh, of stories that oh, yeah. don't do as well. And uh, as we mentioned in the setup for this episode, uh, we think that the best solution to stories like this uh, is similar to the articles and YouTube channels that exist to do gentle, in Christian love, uh, heavily seasoned roasts of the cheesy, preachy evangelical movies. Let's borrow from that approach. Uh, why not then just describe some of the silliest, most preachy secular stories and not get outraged, not start preaching back, uh, not even a call for a boycott or canceling, at least not yet. Uh, but instead, we simply slap our knees, lean back in our desk chairs and laugh. Uh, I think that's at least the <laughs> first appropriate response to some of these stories, because that's like, Zach, I'm going to ask you in a moment, like when was the last time you were ambushed by a preachy secular story? If you're not just sitting there scowling, like what, you know, like you just bit into a sour grape. Uh, the next response is uh, laughter. At least it has been when I was watching uh, a, a story. Can you think of like the last time you just got ambushed by, you know, a, either a book or a movie or a TV show or something and then suddenly, oh, it's a very special episode, and it wasn't so labeled. Uh, the quotas have gone out, uh, the memoranda from the uh, political action group, and, and suddenly this character is suddenly this way, and suddenly we've got to have a storyline about this social issue over here. And yeah, what, what can you think of an example of that recently or fairly recently? Oh, yeah. Uh, one that I was just talking about with a friend and there's a lot of discussion I ran into about this online is on, it was Falcon and the winter soldier. So it was, uh, so two or episode three. Oh no, I'm, I'm only up to episode one and it was, it was, okay. it was, it was okay. I mean, it's no Snyder cut, but it, it, I, enjoy, yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, I love Falcon. I love the winter soldier. It was, it was some good writing. It some, I mean, it read like a slower moving movie. So oh, what happened? Light on the spoilers. Yeah. Light, light on the spoilers. So there's a scene where, uh, Falcon and Bucky are walking down the street and they get in an argument and out of nowhere, the cops pull up and they, uh, uh are we going here? Yep. 
Yep. Oh, and then they, no. they, they talk to, they look at Bucky and they say, hey, is this guy giving you a problem? And then, you know, Falcon kind of rolls his eyes. And then Bucky's like, don't you know who this is? And they're like, oh, wait, that's not just some random black guy. It's a superhero. And then uh, plot twist, Bucky is the one that gets arrested because he uh, broke parole basically because he hadn't met with his therapist recently and then that you know leads to an interesting scene where they actually both have to talk to this therapist together it's pretty funny it's kind of like buddy comedy okay stuff. yeah i've seen that in the trailers for it okay so so the scene yeah. though i mean slight spoiler there but the scene didn't like it wasn't that they arrested sam wilson and you know pinned right. pin him to the ground or any of those terrible police abuse narratives no, it, it was very light on that, but it, okay. um, again, I, I, I talked about this for a while with one of my friends and he's like, he's like, oh yeah, that had all the hallmarks, uh, of a, um, of, of what black people fear from police encounters that they're immediately going to be the suspect that they're, you know, a white person has to vouch for them that, uh, they have to, you know, prove who they are. They have to like prove that they're in innocence. They're not, you know, given the presumption of innocence in other words. Okay. And so, you know, it, it's this whole narrative we've heard very strongly for the last year about the police and yeah, it, it was pretty overt. And so this one website, I looked at it, okay, this is just a rumor. I don't know if there's anything to back this up, but this one website said that apparently a lot of viewers turned off the show at that point. Uh, hmm. I, I don't have access to statistics. I don't know how much people are really talking about it. Maybe it's just a wish fulfillment of this guy, this critic. Uh, but you know. I recognize that right away. I'm like, okay, th this is pretty on the nose, like for what uh, our country has been talking about with police. Interesting. Because as you describe it, it's now, of course, I haven't seen the scene yet. I haven't gotten up to episode two yet. But as you describe it, it actually sounds more of a subtle illusion to me, uh, more similar to uh, a bit in episode one of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier in which uh, Sam Wilson and his sister have gone to a bank to try to save the family business mm -hmm. and keep the boat from being sold and such like. Uh, and there's a similar moment with the, uh, with the loan officer in which he, uh, he's, he doesn't, he's not behaving in an, in an overtly racist way, but you know, he, he seems to recognize uh, Sam from somewhere and then like, Oh yeah, you're, you're the Falcon with the Avengers. And then promptly proceeds to deny them the loan. Now he, right. he seems to give some reasons, but one cannot help but think of, you know, historic incidences where persons of color were denied loans for stupid and racist reasons. Like that is a historical right. reality. And it seemed more subtle in this version of it. Even the, uh, the part where they cut to the outside and you see a red light and then you think, but what's that red light for? Are we doing a redlining reference here? You know, uh, it, it that mm. could have been completely, um, you know, just a, okay, they, you know, this means that someone stopped them from getting the loan you know i don't know if it was too clever uh, someone who's cleverer than i may have interpreted the symbol more effectively uh but at least as you describe it it doesn't sound preachy and so i, I would i don't know I, I would think that if people were turning that off like at least from here it sounds like an overreaction and if i'm wrong then it's another example of uh you had to be there you know because you can sell mm -hmm. a moment like that in the storytelling and, and even just the way that you present it, uh, keep it subtle, you know, like a, a healthy, like, like a better, more effective story would be. Yeah. And it, that bank scene is another interesting one. Cause it's like, well, was it really racism or was it just kind of banking greed or was it just the fact that, Hey, they've been missing for five years and all their assets got, 
auctioned off or whatever. Yeah, they, they left they that really up in the don't air. Don't have any. Yeah, it, it's you could kind of interpret it either way. Yeah, it, it was kind of played safe there. Yeah, I I feel like the cop scene was a lot more on the nose, and so again, it was something. It was something to talk about, but it was like I, I can see how. Okay, if you're someone with a, a thin blue line flag, you're not going to like that scene. If you're someone with the back the blue sticker or a blue lives matter shirt. Yeah. You're, you're going to hate that scene. Mm. And so, um, I thought, man, that, that was a very, um, I guess, polarizing choice that they would throw that in because yeah, again, the, the end point was Bucky and Sam have to meet with the therapist together, which was a really funny scene. Uh, and they're in the police station, like in the interrogation room, which it really didn't make sense. But, you know, the, the screenwriters wanted to get to that kind of buddy comedy scene. But to get there, they went through this, you know, racist cop scene. Which I'm like, yeah, I don't think that was really necessary to the plot. Like that, to me, that's what made it preachy. It was like, you didn't need that scene. You you wanted to use that to send a message, you know. And so. Maybe so. You, expect, you haven't seen that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe before either. I mean, they've a little, you know, a little in, bit. In, in, There's in, a little in, bit in Black of Panther. Like, I would not call Black Panther a preachy story in the least, and yet it dealt overtly oh, no, with not, these kinds of issues yeah. in a fantastical way that yeah. challenged everybody all at once. I mean, I, I'm invited in, and I feel very challenged all, all at the same time. I feel welcome and challenged. That's that's a difficult task to pull off in stories. Well, Black Panther was was basically you know MLK versus Malcolm X, right? It it's sort of their two ideologies in the form of. Uh, King T'Challa and Killmonger. Right. And, and as I've said elsewhere, you know, Killmonger is basically General Zod. He's the Wakandan version of General Zod. You know, both of those characters were true to what they believed. And it was a battle of the wits, you know, and, and, and took the form of physical combat, but it was very much an ideological battle. I, I think what makes it not preachy is that there was balance to that. Right. I, I think when, when something seems very one-sided or lopsided, that's when you're like, eh, this is pretty preachy. Is there something recently that you have read or watched that you felt come across kind of preachy? Well, a few, a, a brief comment on, on Black Panther. I think one of the ways that a story that's trying to explore those kinds of overt and even dangerous issues and you know, controversial issues and, and a, a rather simple yet all at once complex solution to that is make sure that the bad guy kind of has a point even if he's still the bad guy. And in that case, sure. multiple people, uh, you know, fans and critics of Black Panther were saying, wait a minute, you know, Killmonger, like he actually sounds kind of persuasive here. And in he's that not wrong, he's not wrong. Things, no. Yeah. And, and in the, and in that way, you know, the heroes and us are challenged. You know, if a, if a hero, for example, is, is killing someone, and this is one of our future topics uh, for the podcast, like we're challenged. Uh, it's not an easy solution of heroes never kill or heroes never have to make the hard choices. You know, you can always find a way like some of those types of stories or expectations strike me as being very preachy, just kind of a simple morality that doesn't align with reality. But if the bad guy has a point and may need to be stopped using lethal force, I mean, that, that's kind of a that's kind of a good example there. Uh, some other uh, some other examples. I, I want to run through them pretty quickly, uh, just so we're not going too over long here. But I've already mentioned that the Red Skull is Jordan Peterson is a recent example. Uh, one of my uh, quote favorite end quote examples uh, of of a story itself not being preachy, but then the creators themselves, literally the very next day, being preachy. 
uh, is the final episode of season four of the animated series Avatar, The Legend of Korra. I actually wrote an article about this and got in a fair bit of trouble uh, because I, I told uh, I, my, my take. Of course you did. My take on the show was uh, you guys have just given an altar call here at the end of the show. Uh, Korra mm. is the avatar uh, in this uh, in this wonderful uh, fantasy world. Uh, she can control all four elements. And then at the end, uh, she she takes the hand of her friend and they go on a vacation in the spirit world. OK, her friend's a girl like they've, they've been writing letters back and forth during the season. And Cora had a boyfriend in the first or second season. And there was nothing there. You know, and of course, now looking back on that, what, six, seven years later, you know, you, you, you put your hackles up. Oh, oh, so this is a same sex relationship thing. Like, well, when you watch the show, that wouldn't have necessarily come to mind. But then the creators literally the next day took off to the Internet and said, hey, shout out to all you people who said uh, that these two characters should get together. We did it. Are you happy now? Hey, cool. This this is for you guys. This is for all of you. Mm. Um, and OK, without even delving into the morality of that particular issue now, it's a preachy moment not in the show necessarily, but what they do afterwards. They've just done a pretty good uh, fantasy battle, you know, and a, and, a, and a fairly satisfying end to this fantasy series. Of course, it's nowhere near as good as Avatar, The Last Airbender. But then they go out and preach about it. And suddenly, no one is talking about how Korra fought the giant mech. No one's talking about Bolin with his lava bending uh, or, or mm. Mako or any of those other heroes of the Legend of Korra. They're all just talking about this uh this friendship that's going to turn into something more than friendship and suddenly they have juked the whole show on behalf of a particular social cause uh that uh that basically ruined the show i think or at least has severely tarnished the legacy of the show to be more about just that one moment and the creator's interpretation of that moment uh similarly uh, my wife and i have abandoned basically i think uh, it may be permanent by now uh, a lot of the uh, CW uh, DC shows, uh, Arrow, The Flash, uh, Supergirl, and the like, uh, because they hit a point uh, where suddenly it seemed that the storytelling just wasn't as important to them. Uh, clearly, they were getting memos uh, or you know something from the uh, from the the advocacy groups or something, uh, because all of a sudden uh, sexualityism became a more overt force. Uh, of an agenda in these shows and uh, probably the most egregious example like we don't turn off stories right in the middle but we turned it off in the in the middle uh, where they were doing a crisis on earth x crossover with uh, all the superheroes go to earth x which is where the nazis took over and the nazis are so bad that they didn't want you to love who you wanted to love I think I kind of sent that up a little bit in my intro to this episode uh, we just there was one moment in particular where we're just like okay we don't mind watching this. We know there's going to be agendas. We know this is happening, but you, you have just jumped the shark. You have filled the tank with sharks, a bunch of sharks, all of the jaws props there in one tank. And then you have flipped the jet ski over them. Uh, we, we couldn't take it. We were, we were laughing. We were scowling. It's just breachy. It's hilarious. We flip it off. Uh, lest, uh, lest this seem too polarized in one direction uh, there's certainly examples of right wing or other agenda uh preachy secular fiction and i think i still have on my shelf somewhere uh the old uh, the michael crichton novel state of fear uh one of and of course michael crichton a famous uh, sci-fi writer tv show creator uh the other uh, author of the book on which the film jurassic park was based 
but his novel State of Fear was literally, oh yeah, that's the one about how global warming is a scam. I don't remember any of the characters. I barely remember some of the natural disasters, but he wrote it on purpose to say global warming, climate change is a scam. Uh, He did a self-insert of himself as one of the characters just so he could (laughs) lecture all the other characters about how global warming was a scam. And there was the one part that I remember. uh, It was when the, uh, now this was too early to be a tech billionaire, you know, stock footage character, but there is this one kind of lefty, hippie, um, you know, silly, oversheltered, idealistic character who thinks we just need to get back to nature, you know, and there's just capitalism, consumerism are just ruining the earth and we just need to go back to the natural ways (laughs) is literally like killed and eaten by cannibals once he gets among the actual nature. (laughs) So, okay. Your irony is way over the top. You have, you have now jumped over that last guy who was jumping the shark. Uh, I remember that, but not in a good way. Um, it was, uh, it was an altogether hilarious and, uh, and, and ridiculous, uh, finish. Uh, there is no subtlety to that at all. Um, I didn't come away from that book thinking, oh, gee, I think global warming might be a scam, you know, whether or not I thought that before is another issue. Uh, but the book didn't do anything more to convince me that global warming is a scam. Yeah. I mean, a, a good example, the right wing, you know, propaganda, I guess, preachy story would be Atlas Shrugged. Uh, which I I haven't read. I've I've watched the movie, which I've heard it's been, doesn't compare very well with the book. But you know, it it is trying to present a certain economic view through a story. So, and there's not very many of those, really. There's not very many, you know, libertarian or right wing economic parable stories. So yeah, they're all I running podcasts and not writing fiction. So that's, yeah, exactly. That's just how that's how they roll. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just thought of two other examples that I've been watching recently. Um, maybe it's because I've sort of turned them off or turned one of them off. Uh, the first one is for all mankind. So this is a show that's on the Apple TV plus. That looks really good. Are you saying that it's, Oh, well now Uh, now it has a little bit more disappoint. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can spoil it now then. Okay. Okay. So the, the first episode starts off really really good it's about it's like an alternative history like what if the russians got to the moon first yeah and so and so what if the space race never ended it's it's amazing and so what if the space race kept going and then there's moon bases and then there's moon battles and like oh man like i can't wait to see what's going to happen in in this season too like i'm about halfway through it but oh boy it is um uh, the, just pick, pick whatever social issue you want to, you want to see, uh, forced into a movie and they've got it. So you know how there's that scene in, um, Avengers Endgame where it's like all the female superheroes all at once are, you know, beating up Thanos and it's like, yeah. it's kind of obvious. Kind of obvious. Yeah. There's, there's, there's yeah. a memo here. You can, sometimes you can right. see the text of the memo on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it was a cool scene though. I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't. I, mean, I, I yeah, love all those characters. It was a cool scene, but it was, it was very obvious. Like it was, it was like girls rule, you know, it was like the message. Yes. Female audience members cheer here. Right. Cheering is mandatory. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, for all mankind is, is basically on that, on that same deal, but kind of slowly it's like basically a woman is taking over every top leadership position at NASA. And I think where this is going is, you know, if only women were in charge of everything, then the cold war would have, would have been over. And 
again, I'm, I'm halfway through the second season, so I don't know if that's where it goes or not, but I, I can tell that that is what they're trying to say. Okay. Well, that sounds a little bit better than what I was making up in my head, which is the Russians, man. They want to keep you from loving who you want to love, man. Yeah, there's there's very much a focus on two particular gay characters that cannot live the way cannot live authentically or whatever they you know want to say, and it's it's very much on the plight of them that it's very unfair everything that's happening to them. And so, look, let's just be really honest here. This is produced by Apple. The CEO is openly gay. Of course, these are issues that matter to him. Apple is very pro LGBT. So. You know what? It's not surprising to me at all that this is part of their stories. Again, it's it's not very subtle. But you know what? Dang it! I love sci-fi so much. I'm like, uh, I'm gonna put up with the preachiness to see where this well, goes that was my, because that was my question. I'm still pretty hooked by. Yeah, it. you're 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 yeah. obviously still watching. So, but I'm a sucker for sci-fi, Stephen. I'll okay. I'll watch anything. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll watch. Yeah, and <laughs> I'll watch bad movies. We put up with some of the preachiness yeah. in the, in the CW shows as well, and you know, I I don't expect to be switching off the winter soldier if that moment happens in episode two. Cause I, I, I don't think that that's beyond the pale. I think that that reflects reality yeah. that, you know, persons of color have, have controversy with the police and, and it's real, you know, the abuses are real and, and how that works exactly, you know, people can debate in good faith. So I don't mind seeing that in a show, but if mm-hmm. other people get annoyed by that, well, I mean, that's a conversation we would need to have. But yeah, sometimes we can we can put up with the preachiness and I'll put mm-hmm. up with some of that in in evangelical media and sometimes I will put up with it in 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 secular storytelling as well. But if you keep at it, if it's clear that this wasn't a one-off and this is a pattern and you guys are going to keep doing that and you seem not to have any other cool story ideas existing alongside the preachiness, then I'm going to start looking for the exit even before the credits roll, I will bail on the movie, even if I've paid for it. Well, yeah, it really comes down to how heavy handed it is. And again, like I said, is, is it, is it a balanced thing? Like in black Panther where it's very balanced, very, I guess you could say it's a fair debate. Yeah. And more challenging. Um, or, or is it lopsided? Yeah. And yeah. more challenging. Yeah. And so with, with for all mankind, it, it's not simply that women should rule everything and there will be world peace. It's at the same time, deconstructing the kind of strong male characters and making them kind of wimpy or PTSD or making them out to be jerks. And it's, it's very much like it's not simply pro woman as it is anti male. And so when you put those things together, it's like, yeah, this is uh, a, but I'll tell you what the, I, I guess why I haven't turned it back on. It was this one scene in the most recent episode I watched where the um the the lesbian character gets a call from Ronald Reagan and and again she's having she's still in the closet she's having to keep everything under wraps to keep her job at NASA and but she was about to come out and quit her job but then Ronald Reagan calls her and says are you a christian and then she's like yes and you can tell she's lying and then then you feel bad for her that she's having to lie and it's just like man, you know, why did you have to go there? Like that, that was just completely needless that making Ronald Reagan out to be the bad guy. Cause he's a Christian. And I, I don't know, it, it was really bizarre. I'm, I'm literally, you can't tell because <laughs> this is audio, but I'm, I'm wincing a little bit, at least from that description, maybe the actual show had it more subtle, but 
yeah. uh, that's, I mean, it, it was someone's okay, picking now, a side there. Yeah. That, that take, that takes me out of the story. I'll tell you another show that is very overt about religion, very in your face, but I'm still watching it and I don't quite know why. So it's called raised by wolves. It's oh, on that's the a Ridley Scott, a, HBO, HBO max. max. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I would only know about it because I got HBO max to see the Snyder well, cut. He's, he's a rather extreme atheist. Is he not? Oh, he is. Yes, he is. And, and that's what, you know, when I saw his name on it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to just check this out. And oh yeah. So it is about a future earth where there are basically two factions fighting in this total war. One faction is simply called the atheists. Like, and that's it. They want to raise their children and have an atheist world. And then the other faction is the religious faction who are very much Catholic looking, very much Catholic practicing, except they worship the sun god soul and they're called the, the mithraic religion so mithras and it's yeah so they have like instead of a cross on their shirt it's like the they have like the crusader kind of clothing uh in uniforms but instead of like a cross it's a starburst and they're always yeah and they're praying to soul for like the armor of the light instead of like the armor of god it, it's like they're total stand-ins for the you know Roman Catholic Crusaders, except they they worship soul. So the story takes place like after they've had this decades long war, and they've both sent uh, sort of like colony ships to this other planet, and then now their their war is kind of ongoing there. But you know what? It's it's a little more it's it's a lot more interwoven and complicated than I thought it was going to be. There's really no good guy. Oh, and, and that's what not even among the atheists. No, in fact, okay. there is an atheist that is pretending to be a, a Mithraic soldier, and and he's kind of a scumbag, but he's kind of a good guy. And then there's this atheist uh, robot who's actually very evil. Uh, but they're but they're on the same side, but they're fighting, and so it it's. It's interesting. Like I, I keep watching it cause I'm like, it's like so overtly preachy that it's like, you kind of get past it, I guess. I don't know. It's like, it's not trying to be clever. Well, if you're saying there's no good guy, how is this preachy in the bad way? The way that we would condemn <laughs> and or scoff at. I mean, when you set that right. up and I'm going, Oh, are the Mithraic Christians? Is that, the Oh, right. Exactly. Symbolism? You know, ca- right, Catholics right. always get you know, the, the Catholic imagery always gets on TV. Like you're not getting pastor Bob from the fellowship hall representing the bad Christians in the television drama because <laughs> pastor Bob doesn't wear the cool hat just because Catholics wear the cool hats. They get all the press in the TV shows, but this actually doesn't sound wrongfully preachy to me, at least based on your description and, and the fact you're still it keeps watching surprising me. Okay. Yeah. It keep, well then it's actually a good example. Yeah. And it, so like I said, it, the very first episode, I'm like, oh man, this is like so preachy. I don't know how okay. I'm going to watch this. But, but again, like I said, I'm a sucker for sci-fi, so I'll keep yeah. watching. And now I'm in an episode where it shows, it's like a flashback to when this guy grew up as a child soldier for the atheists. And it's like, man, okay, that's pretty evil. Okay. That's pretty, that's pretty depraved. Like, so again, it's not like, it's not pulling punches in any direction. Fascinating. So that that's the interesting thing about it. Yeah, just based on your description, I, I'm actually very intrigued, and and I'm I'm 
you know, hopefully it's drawn for a close here because we haven't even gotten into Star Trek and the preachiness of Star <laughs> Trek sometimes. And wow, I cannot believe that we got through this whole episode without even broaching, however slightly, uh, the topic of the 13th Doctor uh, and the, <laughs> the new Doctor Who seasons uh, run by Chris Chibnall that uh, very few people like because apparently they went full woke. Uh, they just went so preachy, which there was always some light preachiness in early Doctor Who seasons, but apparently they got them the memos too, you know, from yeah. the BBC Diversity SAR or whoever it is. But we won't talk about that. I, I guess just my closing thought here, for my part at least, uh, is the fact that preachiness is not the same as overt. I'm on record, mm-hmm. and I'll go on record again. I like overt fiction. I think we need more Christian-made fiction that is overt. I want to see denominations. I want to see... Uh, issues that Christians have with one another named and dealt with overtly. Uh, That doesn't mean that you have to be preachy about it. In fact, someone needs to go full meta and have a Christian novel in which the debate over preachiness or non-preachiness is a big part of the theme. I would love to see that. I would love to see just the whole issue get uh, blown up to that meta level. And so you're turning the mirror then not not on the uh, imaginary unsaved character out there somewhere uh, whom the Christians can root for getting saved, but turning the mirror of the novel of the story on the actual likely reader who is most likely a Christian. Uh, and I think the more overt our stories go, the less preachy we'll get. Because oddly enough, the preachiest stories I've seen published by Christian publishers are the ones that show the least amount possible of the actual real world church and the actual real world issues that Christians have. All the denominations are kind of smoothed out and there's just this flat featureless Christianity out there somewhere. Every church is a community church. There's no Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists or insert your denomination here, faithful listener. Everything is just kind of cleaned up. And that plus the G-rated world means I, I don't recognize the world. Well, that can happen in secular fiction too. Uh, everything gets you know, turned into factions. There's just the people who want to love uh, versus the haters. Uh, and either dichotomy is a false dichotomy. It, uh, it ruins the story. But you can still have a story with overt elements, uh, like you were describing there with Ridley Scott's show there. Uh, that actually sounds really interesting. And uh, some mm. of the smarter or wiser atheist storytellers are a little bit self-aware about themselves. Oh yeah, he, he totally is. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that he, is an encouragement. In all the alien franchise, he, he's very yeah. aware. And, and that's, that, that's a sign of common grace is you can be aware, Hey, there's bad atheists and there's decent religious people. You know, if an mm-hmm. atheist does yeah. that, then you're firmly in the common grace territory. You're not being preachy. You're just being overt. And I like the overtness, whether by a secular storyteller or a Christian storyteller. And I call for more of that in our fantasy fiction or any other kind of fiction. Well, and I'll, I'll give you one light spoiler here. An atheist character in this show, Raised by Wolves, seems to hear the voice of God. Oh, now so, it gets really whoa. interesting. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I, again, I'm, I haven't made it through the season, so I'm not sure where that's going to go. Maybe it's all just a hallucination, you know, but. I'm kind of cynical, but, uh, but still that's, it's interesting. Now I'm like, Ooh, maybe there is something to this, you know, Mithras religion. And I'd kind of like to know more about it. So yeah, it, it draws you in it again. It's, it's more of a debate than it is a, um, a lecture. And maybe that, again, maybe that's the difference of what makes it preachy. It's just, yeah, that well, that's, well, that's true. There's different voices talking then it is a conversation and the function of the story is not to be a proclamation of the truth 
but the application of the truth in a realistic world, uh, a simulacrum, if that's the proper term, uh, for reality. And, and in that way, a story is on its best possible foundation. It's representing reality where applied truth is never so simple as we would like to imagine. And that's imaginated, um, imagination at its best, too. Uh, when it's uh, when it's being more truthful about the fact that it's difficult to apply those issues in reality, whether for Christians or for, for non-Christians. I'd like to hear more about how that show ends up. Well, and Stephen, we got a great, fantastic fan email. I'm just going to read part of it because it's a very, very long, very uh, great uh, message from Andrew, who sent us a message a couple episodes ago after episode 55 which was my interview with Austin Gunderson about should Christians embrace cultural and digital enclaves. Yeah, that was a good one. And at the end of that, I actually quoted something you had told me offline, which was, hey, maybe Christians should just lead the way in making fun stories because I think everyone is kind of exhausted by all the messaging and heavy-handedness of so many movies. And Andrew picked up right on that, and he sent us an email, and he kind of gave this fake quote of, come to me, all you who are tired of the ideological agendas, and I will give you a great story. And Andrew says, quote, I feel compelled to write to you because I've had one of those, it's not just me then, moments, whilst listening to episode 55 of the Fantastical Truth podcast. And specifically the point that was made about how there may well be an opportunity for Christians to tap into the significant discontent that exists with most of the current output in the fantastic genres. That discontent is expressed by Christians and non-Christians as a reaction to the way storytelling is currently being subverted by the ideological agenda. I have been close to despair myself in the past about these things, and to hear someone else articulate the problem with current content and to describe the opportunity it might present to Christians was quite a revelation. My own objection to the ideological campaign in the fantastic genres is often not even the content of some of the arguments. Parentheses, it would be nice to be able to even discuss these things in a civil manner. Close parentheses. But the insistent dictatorial tone, the intolerance of other ideas, the way stories are subverted and damaged by the agenda, people are bullied and canceled, and the hypocrisy of the proponents of that new ideological agenda. End quote. Andrew, I think you hit it right on the head. It's fun to examine different ideas through stories. I mean, stories kind of give you that that kind of playground to, you know, imagine things differently and, and sort of explore very different ideas and even weird ideas. But you're right that when it, there's a difference between a dictatorship of ideas and a conversation of ideas. And when you can have more of the conversation and the discussion, it's a lot better for everyone. I think everyone enjoys that a lot more. So thanks for writing us, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Amen to that. That was a great comment, and I would hope indeed that more Christian creators can jump onto that apparently trend and come up with just fun stories that are fairly agenda-free, but in being agenda-free actually have the best agenda of all, glorifying God through the creation of excellent artworks that reflect his nature. And uh, for any of our fantastic fans of Fantastical Truth, any stories that you have uh, enjoyed or just enjoyed laughing at, that are either Christian-made stories or secular-made stories, we definitely want to hear about those. Feel free to be as gently snarking as you like. And of course, your feedback could end up in a future episode of the podcast. Just email podcast at lorehaven.com 
or go to our website, uh, the lorehaven.com slash podcast, which is where you will find the complete show notes for this episode and all the other episodes. Find the feedback form at the end of the page and you can send us a note that way as well. Of course, you're also welcome to tag us or comment at uh, the Lorehaven page on Facebook, at Lorehaven on Twitter, or at Lorehaven Mag on Instagram. Next on Fantastical Truth, we have now seen headlines about a microchip that can supposedly detect viruses. What could possibly go wrong? There have been more headlines about bots that look so handsome and so beautiful and just have the most perfect jawline and the most perfect blah, blah, blah. And you can fall in love with this bot and do other things of a less than savory nature. Why are scientists doing this? Don't they read science fiction? Haven't they seen the memes of Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park? And they know that they are so concerned about whether or not they could. They didn't stop to ask whether or not they should. We're going to explore that from a Christian vantage in our next episode. Meanwhile, try to avoid preachy fiction unless you want to put it on strictly for the laughs. I think that that is one way Christians can, quote, enjoy, end quote, these kinds of stories, not because they are effective or of a particular threat to us, but because it's just funny when people try to take something that is used for a conversation and an application of truth in a realistic world and instead use it for that kind of propaganda. Let's instead understand the purpose of stories in God's universe as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>